magicians, wizards, apparitions, adult language, and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not enter the house of mystery. All right, then. On with the show. All right. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to the House of Mystery, the John Constantine and Friends podcast. I am Michael Flores, the curator and host the squatter. <laughs> I'm essentially just a squatter. And then the uh, bisexual demon butler, David. Hello, David. Hello, everybody. Do you like that that role I've given you? I can live with that. The bisexual butler. At least, at least I'm safe inside the ha- house of mystery, not out there with all the crazy things like strange goblins. <laughs> Has a good ring to it as well. The bisexual butler. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a superhero. I, I, feel, I feel like <laughs> I, I think someone needs to go ahead and write that. Uh-huh, it is I, the bisexual <laughs> butler. I will fuck you and you. you. <laughs> With my magic cock ring. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to be talking about Hellblazer issue 11 titled This Sceptered Isle, part one, written by Simon Spurrier, art by Aaron Campbell and Jordi Belair. All right, so we are just about at the end of the road here, Dave. Yes, we are. Just about a year ago, actually longer, a little over a year ago, we were given a beautiful one shot that was supposed to launch a whole new era of John Constantine via Hellblazer. Unfortunately, that is not in the future. For any of us Hellblazer fans. Yeah, but just because of a lot of mitigating circumstances, I mean, it's not even the it's not even the series' fault. No, it's not. It really isn't. I mean, it is it isn't selling as well as it was. I will say that when the issues were first coming out at the comic book shops, good luck getting your hands on one. Yes. Now you go into a comic book shop and there's like 30 of them sitting there. But dude, just because, I mean, like no one, the comic book market's completely changed since the beginning of this series and oh yeah well a lot I, has I think, happened i think that's a major factor is the fact that with every everything changing the way it is like both major comic company companies changing their format titles like this that need the audience to push it forward are going to suffer because well the audience out there is isn't able to actually carry this book because you have you have to actually for for such a I hate to say that Hellblazer is an indie title, but it is. It's a very niche fan base that's almost like an indie title that you would expect from Image Comics and stuff. The only way those comics succeed is if the fan base out there, the readers are out there, are able to get their hands on the book. Yeah, that that is not possible during this time. I honestly think that it's because of the changing market. For sure. Without a doubt. So, all right. So this is the penultimate issue. Yes. We have just one issue left and the bigger story does take a big turn uh, with bigger reveals, bigger excitement, a sex scene to boot. (laughs) I don't know if that's a pleasant sex scene though. 
Constantine has weird taste oh, to come wanting on. to have sex. Making love on top of a, what was that, like a crypt? Like a, a burial site? A burial site. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I like John Constantine's style. <laughs> I know. It's so it's so him. You expect that. It's just grimy. Here, it's grimy. I just banished an evil spirit. Come here, let's make love now. Let's make love now. That's hot. Or even like it seems like he tricked the girl to having sex with him. Too. Well, sh- I'm sure he was definitely grooming her. He's all listen. I'm gonna, you know, get rid of this evil spirit here, and then we're gonna the the way we have to bless this place. Yes, we're. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna consecrate you. <laughs> consecrate you. Yeah. So we found out we find out that numerous side stories throughout the run are more connected than we had originally thought. And things that we thought were just simply connected in a very minor way uh, are, are, let's find a better word for connected. It's probably, it's more appropriately described as intertwined. Intertwined, yes. Much deeper connections than we originally had thought. And I loved seeing how Spurrier crafts this story, taking this web of lunacy and madness that he's crafted for the past year and bring it all together by using a tried and true H.P. Lovecraft trope. And that's the fear of the unknown. Uh, this is something that Lovecraft made famous. Most people know this. Uh, it's a cosmic horror element. And to take that cosmic horror element and bring it down to a more uh, grounded aspect and still using it in the same fashion that Lovecraft would use, but then bring it to to coalesce within society to say something about uh, the social climate. I think that's pretty smart. Yeah. I mean, Spurrier takes those familiar tropes and brings it down to a more grounded level and paints a political piece that absolutely works. It does. It does. I mean, the thing is, is like when Spurrier gets his writing correct, like when he wants to tackle something that is politically motivated, we in past uh, episodes we've we've said hey tone it down a, a little bit but when he gets that perfect chemistry of his storytelling that's where you see his true strength as a writer and in this particular issue you see it <laughs> you see this is where the chemistry he knows the formula he knows how to make it work yeah i this is spurrier's arena whenever you give him something that has some substance to it or you give him free reign, he's going to put together something pretty fantastic. He, we saw him do it with the uh, third and fourth volume of Dr. Afra. Yes. Started. That's where he started, right? With yes. it. Yes. Hey, just give him something, allow him to do what he does. And he's going to, he's going to create something pretty fantastic. And I like when writers take something abstract, like an emotion, like fear and turn it into something tangible Spurrier does this by utilizing a creature that I believe was just some kind of goblin, right? It was never truly stated, um, but this goblin needs to feed on fear or it does feed on fear. And I love this aspect because of some of the best horror stories are the ones that address social issues. Yeah. The ones that highlight a human flaw, a weakness within our culture and society and no, not for the purposes of soapboxing, but the purposes of expressing a thought on humanity. Yes. We don't, that's 
horror in the early days, good horror during horror's heyday. That's essentially what it was designed to do. Yeah. When you can humanize the monster and honestly, throughout the series, the, the times that mean you have stated that the monster of the, of the issue isn't necessarily the villain. It's the human that created that monster. Yeah, exactly. That's what I put in the notes, Dave. The real monster of the story is not the goblin. Yes. The goblin is simply doing what he does. It's, it's, it's in his nature. In a, in a weird sort of way, the monster, the true villain in this, when you see who caused, the, who caused this to start off with to begin with, was Constantine. Okay, so we'll get there <laughs> because we need to discuss that for a bit towards the end. Because I would agree, like, he's the, he's probably the culprit of everything. He's like, the culprit. He's the one who kind of. But it makes sense. Unleash the floodgates. But the real monster, the, the message within this issue, the real monster or monsters are the people that gave into fear. The yes. people that gave into pride, all the bigger problems, the threats within the last 11 issues are byproducts of human weakness and bad decisions. Without these deep seated problems within society, there would be nothing to exploit. And that's what the goblin was doing. He was exploiting racism, hate, xenophobia. Well, on top of that, the, the, the whole thing about the hobgoblin, my favorite part of the, well, or at least one of my favorite parts was the fact that the goblin come, the, or the spirit comes out and literally says, uh, I have it written down here. I was on the cusp of this fine work when I felt it, such fear, mm-hmm. so deep and rich, not from her, no, but from the crowd, from the very air. I couldn't help but pause and listen. That's what drove him was the actual fear of the public. Yeah. And it wasn't anything that was within the spirit. It was outside. It was us. It was humanity. It was it was the essence of of society that drove him. Listen, even a goblin knows that humans are a disease. I mean, Swamp <laughs> Thing has been saying it for years. For years. <laughs> and now when you have something as despicable as this, like, unclean spirit or goblin, and he's the one who's puking, we made a goblin puke and run out the door. Think about that for a yeah. second. That's how strong of a message Spurrier wanted to convey. Yeah. We we caused a spirit that feeds on fear that is disgusting. He's the one who runs out and and calls John Constantine like Jesus dude, you got to help me here. Yeah. I mean like dude, the especially when at first the 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 creature is enthralled by by the sheer magnitude of all the fear that's around him. I mean, he he said it himself. I'm unashamed. He said, to, he, he said it in the book himself. Mm. I'm unashamed to say I came then and there without a touch upon my person. What he's talking to, what he leaves the voicemail to John yeah. saying, like, this is how I started. But then you get to the very end, and just like what you said, he is so appalled. By what he sees, yeah. it caused him to throw up. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie; it makes sense. It does. And when you see all these things that that the goblin fed on fear, but then we even get to the greater threat of old man Constantine, which is about pride, as that was also a part of this issue as well. 
So let's quickly go through some of the details so we are clear on a few things because this issue really did just boom, 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 boom with detail. So I'm going to go through a list here, Dave, and I want to make sure we have it right. Okay. So the monster or goblin that was used to transport the narrative had lived for centuries. Throughout history, he's had many faces and many names, and he terrorized people, created problems, all for the purposes of fear. At some point, he had a run-in with John Constantine, who was helping a woman that this goblin was tormenting. Yes. JC essentially used a spell that bound him below the ground for a decade. Good old Johnny boy then fucked the woman on top of the ground where he was buried. Yes. The goblin felt disrespected. (laughs) So after 10 years, when the spell had worn out, he was intent on getting revenge, but couldn't find John anywhere. Of course, as we know, he had been removed from the timeline. Yes. We are then led to believe or could say there was allusions to the fact that the goblin is one of the reasons John is alone and has no friends in this timeline. It had killed them as we saw that connection to his previous friends that had moved to the U.S. We also are led to believe that the woman John saved from the goblin is Noah's mom. Is Noah's mom. He said that her son walked in while he was penetrating her mind. She woke up. They both saw things that they weren't supposed to, putting Noah's mom into a coma. And that's how Noah lost the ability to speak. Now, here's the thing that I thought of, too. Is he alluding to the fact that John could possibly be Noah's dad? Because this is the same woman who had sex with him on top of the grave. You know what? I didn't think about that. And and it would make sense. That would be a good reveal at the end. Yeah. And I was like going, that is actually really cool. That's a cool point of thing. Why John may be because down deep inside, John is a good person. He would have, he he would instinctually be driven to help Noah out. Mm -hmm. Why? Why is he driven to help Noah out? Could John actually know that Noah could be his son? Hey, listen, that's a that's a good theory, Dave, and that is definitely reasonable. I can definitely see that being a thing. Because it made me think back to the very first issue where we get introduced to Noah. John is hell-bent on helping Noah out. And listen, there's no time for a condom either. Let's be honest. Like If you're like, <laughs> all right, we just, we just put this spirit to rest. Now come here, you. Oh, hold on a second. Okay. We're about to have some some... Some diabolical spell, ritualistic type sex in, in a cemetery. Well, hold on, let me put the condom on. No, come no, on, no, no, fuck no. the condom. That's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> and this is John Constantine. Just like you said, he's the most despicable human being. Yeah, John's not using plan. a condom. He's not. No way. Yeah, he's not using a condom. Let's be real. So the goblin then gets distracted when he takes notice of the current political divide because apparently he's never felt so much fear in all of his existence. So he assumed the ident- so he assumed the identity of Clem Thurso, a UK politician and MP, and exploited the heightened political unrest. Yeah. Okay. Does that sound about right? Sounds about right. Yeah. In a nutshell, that's everything we essentially could derive from the goblin side of things. The goblin side of things. Yes. Because there is a bigger game being played, especially when you get to the very end. Right. So now we see how Spurrier's run is twofold. There's more going on than we had originally been led to believe. Originally, Dave, we had assumed that old man Constantine had caused everything. Sure. He's going 
or he's doing some evil diabolical type shit. But more and more, it looks like our boy John Constantine is responsible for setting everything in motion. As you had mentioned a few moments ago, John's selfish desires to get laid seem to be the thing that set all of this in motion with the goblin that then set his sights on the fear that was taking control of the UK. And eventually that fear emboldened the masses and turned to pride. A essentially a form of extreme nationalism, which we all know what that is. Yeah. And this is where old man John comes into play. The fear that turned into pride is where John Constantine comes in because pride was a big part of the last issue. If you remember old man, JC had told John I'm pride period. That's it. I'm pride. I'm you at the end of a long, happy life. So if this had started with fear, this entire story, the end game has everything to do with pride. With pride. Because especially with the with the hobgoblin telling John that he decided to instead of living uh, eat feeding off that fear, he decided to start, as he put it, climb. And he he basically tells John, after ten years, don't I deserve this? And that's a bit of pride. He's he's basically there's a little pride in there from from uh, Rawhead. That's the goblin's name. Yeah. That. He's done all this. He deserves this. This is his pride. This is his prideful work. Yeah. <laughs> I also like the the political subtext there pertaining to nationalism. Surprisingly, yeah. I I actually pretty enjoyed that. Because we know that when people are emboldened, when a certain political thought, ideology, maybe a fringe element or starts out as a fringe element, the idea of let's say xenophobia. And no one sets out to think no, most people don't set out and say, I'm going to be racist. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Most people aren't aware. Sure. There are the people who are just filled with hate and are just straight up racist pieces of shit. Racism and prejudice are two very different things. And when we allow prejudice to take a hold of ourselves and in, in control our decision-making, we become fearful many times of things we don't understand. Then when we find a group of people who think like us, or we find a leader that rallies everyone together who have similar thoughts, similar ideas, and uses fear, exploits fear, right? Yeah. You embolden these individuals. And that fear subsides because they found other members other people that feel like them. And that's how you then become an emboldened group. Exactly. And that leads to pride. So I like that. And essentially that is what nationalism is to a degree. Um, For those that aren't aware of what nationalism is, it's basically the identification uh, with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. So, by definition, I don't want to say nationalism is awful. It's it, You should have pride. We see it all the time. We push pride in people's nations all the time. That's why we have parades in this country, remembering yeah. where we come from, the culture. 
But when it becomes supreme and in your mind becomes a, essentially a road to supremacy, then suddenly you look down at the other cultures and then that's when nationalism is a bad thing. It's a bad thing. It's, yeah. it's the difference between natu- nationalism and patriotism. Right. Patriotism is more like the, the positive side of that. Well, nationalism is like, just like you said, that's when you start getting into the negative of it. Right. So I thought that was probably the, the smartest thing about this issue in terms of political subtext, because it wasn't stated. Um, some of the fear stuff is, I don't want to say heavy handed, like we get it. Like we live in very divisive times, not just in this country, but overseas as well. But the idea of fear, we've seen that. We've seen that being used numerous times in various works of fiction. Yeah. Because that's what a lot of artists do and writers. They use the things that they're seeing around them. They want to make a statement about how they feel about the political landscape that they are surrounded in or they find themselves in. So that stuff is is all understandable and it's very overt. We get that. Yeah. But the idea of nationalism being an issue and being a problem and how fear leads to those types of ideology. It's pretty smart. It is. I liked it. And I was really impressed because number one, when I first read this, I was really worried Spurrier would get on a soapbox, right? And basically try to make this as an agenda. But in actuality, when you think about it, when I read this for a second time, I was like going, do I feel like I'm being finger pointed at? No, because he uses the concept of like what you said, fear It's kind of like that global, global unifying thought that basically we all doesn't matter where we're from. Doesn't matter. Like, you know, your race doesn't matter about your, your country of origin. Everyone understands fear. Everyone understands like this is, this, this is how, a concept like government can go. All governments go like this. It's neither, it's neither our, our government, Russia, whatever you call it. So in a lot of ways, the second time I read this, I didn't feel like he was trying to force an agenda. No, it's just facts. But yeah, trying to, trying to put forth a concept. Well, and this is something we've heard. First off, it's been around since the dawn of politics. Uh, the the, oh, the yeah. usage of fear. Fear has been used to control groups of people, nations of people for eons. But even within our, let's say the last couple of decades, let's say since post 9-11, there was a statement that Spurrier made as well in this issue about once we lose, what was, I forgot the exact wording, but they, he alluded to the fact that fear it comes in different names. And once we get over this fear, we'll just find something new to be afraid of. And that's what a lot of people have said about post 9-11. First, it was the the fear of not being safe in this country. Then it was fear of Muslims. Then it was fear of the government and the freedoms that they were taking from us because of post 9-11. And you always got to find these enemies, the government always needs to find these enemies, the boogeyman, essentially, so yeah. that they can use that to control us. Hey, listen, we're going to take away some civil liberties because this over here, this is really bad, what's happening here. And if we don't do this, you might die. 
they might rape you. They (laughs) might steal from you. They might take your grandmother's purse on the street. So we need to make sure you guys understand these threats here. And we see governments do this all the time. It's how they maintain a form of control. And all governments do it and all politicians do it. That's why I didn't get upset about the about alleged soapboxing, because I did see some people making comments about the politics. And, and number one, you're dealing with a, a story that started off political. Number two, you're dealing yeah. with Constantine. You're always going to a good Constantine story is always delving into social issues. And the, the the aspect of fear and race, those are very real problems. They are. And it's not like he's blaming one group. He's not drawing a line in the sand and saying, hey, if you think like this, you're racist. He's simply saying, look what fear does. Yeah. And also explaining that fear is a concept that's been with us since we were cavemen. And we're victims. All of us are victims of fear. These things that happen to the people in the UK and the story here can easily happen to every single one of us if we're not, if we don't exercise caution. So it's more of a cautionary tale than a soapboxing tale. And that's why ultimately the politics works for me. You know, Spurrier is firing shots at humanity. If anyone should be triggered, it should be the human race. It should be the human race. The human species. Yeah. And that's what, that's why I like is like, he's not, he's not aiming for a specific group. He is, he is aiming at all of us. He's putting the microscope over serious human flaws. Period. He's not focusing on any one group. He's saying, we're all pieces of shit. Be careful. <laughs> I mean, I really liked how this despicable goblin monster was so appalled and disgusted. That, yeah. that was the that was the that was the biggest canon to humanity of this entire issue. It wasn't just Spurrier firing shots. He set up a cannon, a surface to air missile. That's even better. And just launched it. That reveal where the goblin just runs out the door. That's a strong message on just how sick we are as as a society currently. And it ties with the overall concept that Spear has done throughout the, uh, throughout the entire series where yeah. the monster is the victim. The monster is not the one that basically is what we should be, be scared of. The monster is the byproduct. The monster is the byproduct. The guy that you got to be scared of is the one who created that monster. And it's also exactly Dave. And it's also something that, a lot of people are unaware of that's why this issue here is very multi-leveled in what it's trying to do yes because we as uh, as a as humans as a civilization especially in this country right now currently in the united states we never want to tackle the, the actual root of the problem we tackle the byproduct so how do we stop gun violence well let's get rid of guns but that's <laughs> not going to solve violence yeah What's going to solve violence? What's going to solve racism? What's going to solve hate? Once we figure out the reasons these things happen, then we'll solve the problems. Yeah. And that's the allegory of this issue. And not just this issue, but the issues that all involve monsters where the monster is not the problem. It's the byproduct of the root of the root of the actual issue. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, if you look at every single quote unquote monster in the past couple of issues, the hobo, 
and the angels. The hobo angels, racist. The, the, the angels aren't the monster. It's the racism of the hobo that created the angels. Right. Then you have the racist ghost. The ghost is not the monster. The monster is the racism that created the ghost. The greed is what created the, the, the mermaid. The mermaid's the monster. Then you get the unicorn and it's the, the corruption of that, one, uh, of that one politician created the disfigured unicorn. Humans. Humans. Every single one of the villains, the real villains, has been human. Human flaws, human weakness, prejudice, racism. Fear, misogyny, sexism, perversion. So when people get mad and say, oh, you're drawing the line in the sand, Spurrier, you're, you're pointing your finger at people and calling them racist. I'm like, dude, you're not really looking into the stories. Yeah. Like, it's so much deeper than just that. Yeah. Oh, especially when you get to this issue and then in the very end, you get the the overall concept of monster in this one now the monster isn't the hobgoblin the monster is the thing that scared the hobgoblin from the beginning and you find out that basically it's this cult (laughs) from the beginning oh yeah, Yeah, yeah yeah the cult and what they're doing to basically this myth another mythical creature yeah and that that was a little strange I I felt very uncomfortable. You and me both. Listen, I mean, listen, that's something that we all do on a Friday night in the House of Mystery. (laughs) But we don't have this in our basement. And I usually do it alone. It's not a group fucking. (laughs) It's not a group fucking. It's not an orgy. I'm not into fucking giants with a bunch of people. And and here's the thing. It's not even if they were. It's not even the, the fact that the cult was having sex with the giant. They were cutting into the giant. Yeah. And having sex and with fucking it. holes and fucking and, holes. And like, for I mean, me, were there dildos attached to them too? Uh, no, those were, I think those were stakes that they can keep the holes open. Okay. Cause it looked like some of them were writing the holes or writing the stakes then. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I will never think I have a perverted mind again because Spurrier takes the cake. For hey, that. you know me. I'm as, I, I'm, I'm as dark as you could get with being a pervert. Yeah. But this crosses my line. This crosses your line. Like, this listen. crosses my line. This is just weird. All right. Come on now. <laughs> Come on. I mean, like when, when it, when you, it takes basically cutting into something and then you just slide right in or you stick a steak oh. in through it and then you slide on the steak. No, that's too much. That's no. too much. But the, the thing w- was, is like, it takes a mythical figure again, the giant. Which, if you know English lore and Arthurian lore, that's what Spurrier was using to kind of bring in the mythological aspect of it. It wasn't the Hobgoblin. It was the giants that basically are – basically, if you know British lore, yeah, Mm -hmm. the giants are the ones that basically started Britain. Okay. So we'll we'll probably find out their connection, what the connection is later. But – yeah. But I think the point of that scene was just to isolate and what's the proper way to say this or the way I'm trying to say this. It's it's sheer depravity. Depravity. Yeah. And, and that's the point. Just uncontrolled, unrestrained depravity. And that is also 
very on par with everything that this issue had revealed and humanity as a whole. Spurrier hates people. I think he hates. (laughs) I think he does. And listen, Spurrier, I hate people too. So I'm right there with you, buddy. People are disgusting, foul, horrible creatures. I'd rather live in a jungle with a bunch of animals. They're innocent. They're naive. They know not what they do. Humans, on the other hand, are vile. (laughs) Are vile. They fuck giants. And and the thing is, I love the fact this is a perfect story for Constantine. Because at the very end, the one person that everyone in, in DC fandom always says, John Constantine's the most despicable person on the face of the planet. People that don't know John Constantine's stories and truly understand the character. The character. Yeah. That's why the 52 could could (laughs) jump off a cliff. And then all of a sudden at the very end, even Constantine's like going, God damn humanity. I just love that Spurrier gave Constantine's shock a full page. (laughs) (laughs) No, he went even more than a full page because you get to the shot where he sees everything and he's still in shock. And then Barry from the beginning, the guy that Constantine screwed over, yeah. Basically, is one of the guards, and you and Constantine's still in shock and runs down the hall. That's the best part. He runs. He like oh, later, <laughs> later. That was two fingers up too. It was like peace. And, and like and like Barry's like, do you want me to? Do you want me to let you let him know that you're here? I mean, do you want to join in? If the hum- humans are willing to do this, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. All right, so I thought overall this was an exceptional story. I like seeing how all those loose ends were not loose ends at all. They were all narrative strands that are now being brought back into the main narrative or myth arc because we're coming to an end. In terms of scripting, because we know what to look for, Dave, it's what we do. Yeah. There were some problems. There are. There are. Now, I have no idea. issue. In terms of format, right? I mean, I have... No idea when Spurrier was told that his Hellblazer run was going to be canceled. I'm, I'm, but I'm thinking it was well before he wrote this issue because with just two issues left, including this one, it does feel very exposition heavy, very rushed. It feels like this was the issue where we're just going to get a lot of uh, an info dump, an info dump. And even though I liked how he did it, I think it was smart. I, the story works and the connections all make sense i can't help that i get the impression that he had to write the issue like this because he was running out of time because he was told hey you guys are done with issue 12 all those reveals and connections told through a voicemail it felt a bit like a cheat now mind you a cheat that worked it did but because we do reviews critically it is noticeable yeah, because like the thing is, when you take a look at it, and after I read this the second time, I basically said, if if Spurrier knew that he only had twelve issues to tell his story, and or about twelve issues, and I don't think he would have just in one issue dumped everything into exposition. It does feel like he would have he would have spaced it out more. I would think he would. Now, I know they had said on social media, I believe Aaron Campbell and Spurrier both had said that they had planned on ending the story at 12, this immediate story that there was an ending already set. So it's not going to be a big problem, they said, 
with the with the title being canceled because there was some fear that we wouldn't get a conclusion. Yeah. And he said, well, my story had originally planned to be was planned to wrap by 12 anyways. His immediate story could be wrapped. But I have a feeling that there's other elements that probably were going to be pulled over a little longer. Yes. But the issue pertaining to old man Constantine probably was going to be wrapped. Absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah. But the all the other connections with the goblin, it feels like a lot all of a sudden. Yeah. And even though it does make sense, because listen, we saw all those things and having the goblin be a part of it and using that goblin as a way to bring everything together. Listen, that fucking works. We've seen this politician from the very beginning. All of it works. And it is actually really fucking smart. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying that I don't feel like this was the original plan to express some of these ideas. But because Spurrier is a top notch writer, it seems like he took what he was given and said, all right, I'm going to fucking make this work for me. That's what it feels like. He shoved that circle into the square and he made it work for the purposes of his story. Yeah. And that's what it feels like is like he took he took basically. He he took the broken eggs and made an omelet out of. Yeah, there you go, you know? Dave. Yeah. And like he did the best that I think he could have done because a lot of the concepts that he introduced here feel like they were part of the second run that was going to probably follow after this. Possibly. Story. Because when you look, let's contrast it with issue nine. Because issue nine, you can also say, has a lot of exposition, right? Yes. But it's done differently. It's done differently. Because you're in a dream sequence. And because you have those clever moments where Constantine tricks old man Constantine into spilling the beans. Those are things that are more believable logically why old man Constantine would start spilling some facts, dropping some truths because of reasons. You you give a reason why a character would talk this much, and that's what issue nine did. Now you can say the same thing was done in issue ten because, uh, or issue eleven, I should say, um, because of the voicemail, which the voicemail was a good writing gimmick. It was a good cheat, but it was a lot. The entire issue was essentially just a voicemail that we then use to talk us through the entire story. Exactly. So there is some minor issues there. Uh, the art was was fine. Aaron Campbell coming back. There are some issues I have with Aaron Campbell's <laughs> there art. Are, there I, I are. think his art is exceptional, and the guy is a, is a true artiste. Yes, like he's a genius. But there are moments where I would like to see him pull back a little bit on his style because some of the art is just really hard to see. Well, on top of that, it takes away from the script. <laughs> It does does. a little bit. It makes it a little harder to understand what's going on because you're trying to analyze every panel. And listen, I'm okay doing that. I like reading the panels. And when I say reading, I mean examine the panels. I like doing that. I feel like that's part of the comic book reading process. However, when I can't really make things out on the printed version, so I have to pull up my digital version and and zoom in to see some of the things because some of the colors are just very blown out. And I don't know if that's Campbell or if that's uh bel air. I don't know, but I would like to see not so much blown out imagery. And I feel like such a douche saying that. And I know we've said this before, but, uh, but the reason why I feel like a douche is because Am- Aaron Campbell's art is fantastic. It's just at times that style 
I feel pulls you out of the story when you can't quite see what's going on. Well, especially since, okay, like I'm going to be a little bit more harder on the art here because I feel that it's inconsistent. That's what drives. If there's one thing that will drive me nuts. What do you mean? It's inconsistent. Like, just like you say, Campbell's a brilliant artist. We know that he can do some really great art and you get to like, say page five where you have that beautiful cover page of the politician huddled in the corner, talking, trying to keep everything a secret drawn beautifully. I think that was a brilliant first page. It says the sceptered aisle on the very top to get our story kicked off of this guy talking on his phone, hiding, right? But then you jump to the next page and suddenly everything's blown out in red because he's talking about, he's talking about his, his life and it starts, they called me Bogart. But how is the that inconsistent one. though? Because you have such great detail in the the beginning page and then the next page, everything's all muddled. I can't tell what the hell's going on with all the reds and the blacks all meddled together. But wouldn't you say that's consistent with his overall style for every issue he does? Because if you go back, every single monster scene is a blown out red color. I would, I would agree. I would agree. Now, we know he doesn't do the coloring. Yeah. Belair does the coloring. So again, I I wonder, is that Campbell or is that Bel Air? I would agree. But then just to just to show that he can show great detail with with the with the art, the following page where you have Constantine sitting on the grave talking to the girl. Yeah, that is beautifully drawn. That's fantastic. It's beautifully drawn. You get the expression of John as the smarmy guy smoking the cigarette, sitting cross legged on the on the aisle perfectly, perfectly detailed and i'm like going okay so why can't we get this so what are you trying to say then you want more detail i want more detail like if i get like what you said creatively this is something that campbell's been playing around with the monsters are constantly out of uh uh, all jumbled up they're all uh, muddled together but the one thing that we've been consistently saying every single time he does this is we want to see more detail. What the hell is the monster doing? We don't even, we can't even tell. No, because it's just, uh, it looks jumbled. It looks it jumbled. Lo- there's a bunch of colors and lines and, and, lines. and things just kind of thrown together. So I do agree with you. I'm just trying to help you get your point across. And, and yeah, I mean, like, that's the, that's the ultimate thing that I would say is like the consistency of detail. How's the, that? I see. I don't, I don't agree with the consistency aspect. I just feel like that's a style, Dave. And can we say it's inconsistent if it's his style that has been consistent? I think you should just, I think a better way of saying it, Dave, is you just don't like it. Yeah, I have to say. It may not it, be your cup of tea. It, it might, it, but I would say my cup of tea. if we were to describe it as inconsistent, I feel like that would be false because it's not con- inconsistent. It's actually consistent with everything he's done. It's just basically the details. I think possibly you Probably just aren't details. keen on his style when it comes to his choice of writing a scene out when it pertains to there you go. monsters. Because there you go. Yeah. when we're dealing with Constantine and we're dealing with the, the regular part of the story on all issues he writes or draws, it looks fine. But the moment we get into the monster aspects, we lose detail. Sometimes we can't even really make out what's happening with the monster. And yeah. possibly maybe there's a hp lovecraft aspect to his art you know f- the fear of the unknown 
a cosmic horror aspect where you can't quite make out what you're supposed to be afraid of. I, I don't know. If for me, it doesn't always work. Aaron Campbell's art is amazing. It's amazing. I could see it literally. And we say this every time. I can see his art in an art show and people would spend thousands of dollars to own his art. But some of it sometimes is a little too abstract and it does pull you out, right? It pulls you is out. That, is that, I guess, what you're trying to say? Yeah, it pulls you out. I mean, like, I think you hit it on the head when it comes to him translating a story, right? Trans, uh, like what you said, translating the words of the page to the art. Campbell can sometimes not get there for some strange reason. He just can't, can't get the, the, the great details out. And maybe it's maybe it is, which maybe is a little style, which is a little frustrating because he has such a wonderful look to his. There is such a wonderful look to his art most oh, of the time. In, in an issue, you're looking at eighty percent of it is just fine. He brings such an awesome horror noir vibe to much of his panels. It, I mean, look at the opening two or three pages, just beautiful. Oh yeah, so but it it really does come down to like. I honestly think just skimming through all the pages again, it's the coloring. Jordy well, Beller's coloring then maybe is just it's not, not working. Maybe it's not Campbell then, Dave. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, uh, at the end of the day, it's still Campbell's art that we're seeing right in front of us. So the colorist and the artist have to be on the same page. They got to be. So Campbell knows what the image is uh, that the final print's going to look like. Because it has to go through him. Right. All right. So final, uh, I don't think we need final thoughts. I think people already know. My RMD score is a 91%. Dave, what about you? Uh, I'm giving this one a 87%. 87% just because, as I said, I really, I like the story that's being told. The format's kind of strange to me, just as we mentioned, but... The colors and the art just take me out at certain pages, and it get, it's getting frustrating. Well, Dave, um, luckily for you, you're not on Twitter because I'm sure Aaron Campbell will uh, want to attack you soon. <laughs> He's going to go after you. He's going to attack me. <laughs> the Aaron Campbell Twitter army. <laughs> Twitter army. All right. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we will be back very soon with more John Constantine-centric discussions. Remember, find us on iTunes and Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Just search House of Mystery. Thank you, David. Thank you. My name is John Constantine. I'm the one who steps from the shadows, all trench coat and arrogance. I'll drive your demons away, kick them in the bollocks, and spit on them when they're down, leaving only a nod and a wink and a wisecrack. I walk my path alone because let's be honest who'd be crazy enough to walk it with me